Hey listeners, on May 13th, we invite you to join us and Reed Hoffman for a new virtual strategy session presented in alliance with Capital One Business. You'll hear insights from fellow entrepreneurs about how to be at the forefront of leading change with AI. So go to mastersofscale.com AI strategy right now to register for free. Again, that's mastersofscale.com AI strategy. Looking forward to seeing you there. Hi, listeners. It's Reed. Today, we're sharing an episode with Uber CEO Dara Khosrowshahi. Today's show will tackle some of the most fascinating and complex topics you can encounter when you lead a company from startup to scale. But at its core, this episode is based on a simple, timeless story. So simple, you could tell it to your kids at bedtime. And that's how we'll start the show. Okay. Jack, Amelia, do you want to hear a story? Yes. A story! Okay, what story should we read? A pirate story. Okay, you got it. The Adventures of Captain Jess Specklecrow. Jess Specklecrow here. Whoa. And her, <laughs> her band of pirate <laughs> rogues. Arr. Chapter 13. The Pirates Agree to Change Their Ways. Captain Jess Specklecrow and her band of cutthroat pirates were counting the treasure from their latest raid aboard their fearsome ship, the Masters of Sail. One doubloon, two doubloons, three doubloons. Excuse me, Dad. What's a balloon? Doubloon, it's money. It's like they're counting their dollars. Oh. One money, two yeah. money, three money. One money, two money, three money. Jess looked across the deck at the faces of her pirate crew. What a sorry sight. Despite all the treasure that they had stolen, something didn't feel quite right to Jess. It was a feeling that had been bothering her for a while now. Listen up, crew. Jess yelled, but the pirates were too busy divvying up their spoils to pay attention. Over by the fossicle, a pair of gnarly sea dogs were fighting over a shiny, polished ruby. They were? Ruby? Ooh, I love rubies. Looks like you want to go for a swim. Come here, you salty dog. Ah, Ooh, find your ruby. You got me. Urge is but a scratch. While over by the mainsail, a gaggle of pirates had cracked open a case of rum. What's rum? Rum is a grown-up drink. Oh. Jess sighed, drew her flintlock pistol, took aim at the barrel of rum, pulled back the hammer, and fired. Listen up! Daddy, I have a question. I want the zoo, and I... Had fun at the zoo and we saw some peacocks. I said listen up! We're known for being the most ruthless band of pirates in the Silicon Isles. Arr! her motley crew cheered. Arr! We've smashed our year-on-year booty growth projections yet again! Arr! the pirates shouted again in excitement. Arr! And our plank walking optimization algorithm has sent more of our prisoners to Davy Jones' locker than any other. 
Arr! They all cried. Let me hear you say R. Jackie, say R. R. No, say it loud. Say it loud. <laughs> <laughs> but our fiendish reputation has got the best of us. It's time we put our pirating ways behind us. It's time we shaped up and became a navy. The pirates gasped. <gasps> a well-behaved navy with shiny uniforms and disciplined officers and those things that stop you doing bad stuff. What do you call those things again? Morals. They're called morals. Morals! If we shape up, leave behind our low-down ways, and do the right thing, we can get even more treasure, not just for us, but for everyone! A silence fell upon the pirates. They looked at one another. Then, one of them began to chant. Navy! 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 And other voices joined. Navy! 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 Until the chorus of pirate voices echoed about the rigging. Navy! 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 And the legend of Jess Specklecrow and her honorable Navy lived on forevermore. The end. Please hear another story. Please, Daddy? No. Right, I live in the video. The end. The end. Thanks to our producer, Chris McLeod, and his children, Amelia and Jack, for letting us listen in on Storytime. Thanks, Chris, Amelia, and Jack. Like many stories of redemption, there's a moral to be taken from the tale of Captain Jess Specklecrow and her pirate gang. It's an obvious one that even an easily distracted four-year-old can grasp. But that said, it's a lesson many founders forget. There's a romantic notion that startups should behave like a band of pirates as they fight their way hook and cutlass toward scale. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's a view I wholeheartedly agree with. As long as you keep a firm grasp on your ethical compass and realize that your days as a swashbuckler must give way as your company matures. I believe that every startup must transition from a band of roguish pirates into a disciplined navy. Get the timing wrong, and you'll quickly be lost at sea. You've got to have incredible talent at every position. It's like this huge push. There are fires burning when you're going home. Can you believe it? Such an idiot. And then you go back to, this is totally going to be amazing. There are so many easy ways. So, 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 I have no idea what to do. Sorry, we made a mistake. But you have to time it right. Oops. Working out of a three-bedroom apartment. Stuff that just seems absolutely nutballs. Ten years later, we're like, well, that's just how you do it. We haven't made just how you do it. This is Masters of Scale. Hi, listeners. It's Erica Flynn, VP of Alliances and Audience Development at Wait What? the company behind Masters of Scale. My day-to-day consists of nonstop communication, not only with my immediate team, but with our current partner relationships and with incoming leads from possible future partners, which is why I rely on the ease of Grammarly to keep my communication clear and efficient. One confusing email can turn into several confused replies, which can turn into an unexpected meeting which no one wants, needs, or has time for. 
Having Grammarly on hand as my trusted AI writing partner not only streamlines my extensive to-do list, it minimizes miscommunication by quickly and efficiently synthesizing information and carefully curating tailor-made responses to specific groups. In fact, companies that use Grammarly to communicate can save 19 days per year per employee. Grammarly eases the writing process. It's a writing partner from the blank page to the last word typed before hitting send. Join me and over 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly to work faster, hit their goals, and keep their data secure. Visit Grammarly.com to learn more. That's Grammarly.com. I'm Reid Hoffman, founder of LinkedIn, partner at Greylock, and your host. And I believe that every startup must transition from a band of roguish pirates into a disciplined navy. Get the timing wrong, and you'll quickly be lost at sea. For decades now, startups have had an affinity for pirates, and it began, like so many things in tech, with Steve Jobs. When Steve was building the first Macintosh, he coined the phrase, it's better to be a pirate than to join the Navy. The Mac team got on board, creating a homemade pirate flag with a rainbow-colored Apple logo as an eye patch. In Silicon Valley, the pirate image stuck. It's easy to be seduced by this image of the entrepreneur as a pirate. Who doesn't want to leap across the rigging, cutlass in hand, like Johnny Depp? And look, early stage startups are a lot like pirate ships. Pirates don't convene a committee meeting to decide what to do. They strike quickly, break rules, and take risks. And you need this buccaneering spirit to survive when the cannonballs are flying and the odds are against you. But some startups cross the line from swashbuckling hero to dirty, rotten scoundrel, especially as they grow. You can tip from a culture that joyfully flaunts orthodoxy to a culture that truly believes that winning is all that matters and ethics be damned. And there's a second problem with piracy. It doesn't scale. If you succeed as a pirate, your stockpiles of treasure will grow. The territories you control will widen. But you can't protect and patrol that much territory with only a ragtag fleet of pirate ships. This is why every startup needs to shed its pirate nature at some point and evolve into something more akin to a navy. No less heroic, but more disciplined, with rules of engagement, lines of communication, and long-term strategy. I wanted to talk to Dara Khosrow-Shahi about this, because in accepting the role as Uber CEO, he's taken on the most extreme pirate-to-navy transition I've ever seen. Uber blitzscaled to become the most valuable startup in the world. It also became notorious for a toxic culture rife with discrimination and questionable business practices. Uber has already secured its place in business history, whether it's seen as a success or a cautionary tale or both rest on Dara's ability to transform the company from a pirate ship to a disciplined Navy fleet. Throughout his career, Dara has built a reputation for running very large, very successful organizations with no drama. In other words, he's a classic naval leader. He was primed from a young age to act like an admiral, not a brigand. During his childhood years in Iran, his father would often bring him to work at the factories of the family business. When we went to these factories, he was beloved. The employees just loved him. And the way that he spoke with our employees was, was just amazing. It was, it was very human. It made a huge impression on the young Dara. My father is 
the most modest person alive, and he never confused his position of authority as a manager with his position as a human. In 1978, Dara's family was targeted by the radical opponents of Iran's then-leader, the Shah. Dara's family escaped to the U.S. After the revolution in Iran, their business was nationalized and lost to them. Our whole family was in this business and, and worked together. So to see that connection lost uh, was very tough. I didn't understand it until later in my life. The family slowly started over in America. What it taught me was that when you think you've lost everything, you really haven't. The opportunity to rebuild showed me that you can take risk, that failure isn't final, that you can get back up, dust yourself up, and get going again. This resilience in the face of adversity, the belief that things can and will work out, is essential for any leader, and especially when leading through a turnaround. That skill will come in handy later in the story. But Dara's first job out of college was with the media investment bank Allen & Company in New York. It's here he met the iconic media executive, Barry Diller, who was a client. In truth, the two never should have met. I was the grunt who was doing the grunt work, which then should have translated into a beautiful presentation, which a wonderfully polished vice president would deliver to Barry Diller. Barry didn't want that. He wanted to know the person who was running the numbers because he wanted to make sure that those numbers are right. Barry relied on Dara for the facts. I remember distinctly Barry Diller hovering over my computer saying, when are you going to print out the new spreadsheet so we can take a look at it? I'm under pressure. I'm sweating in my suit at the time. And Barry's waiting for the printout to happen, impatient for these slow laser printers. And then we would go through the printout. He wanted to understand himself, and he wanted to go to the source. By hovering over Dara's desk, Barry was bypassing the hierarchy that can make a Navy slow to react or keep the truth from those in command. Barry grew to rely on Dara for this kind of unfiltered truth, and he soon enlisted Dara as a Commodore in his new Naval Command. Dara ran a lot of things for Barry. He started at USA Networks and later became Barry's CFO at Interactive Corp., or in short, IAC. In 2005, he became the CEO of the travel website Expedia, owned by IAC. Expedia was experiencing intense competition, and some hotel chains had withdrawn from the site. It was up to Dara to turn the company around before its problems got too serious. I was working harder than I ever had. I was in every single meeting. I was working day and night. I was making decision after decision after decision. I thought I was doing a great job. I had no idea. Dara had been at Expedia for just one month, but already he had set a tone of openness and honesty. It meant that employees felt free to speak their minds with him. I had an eye-opening moment when a young product manager, Jen Pierce, I still remember her, came to me just to shoot the breeze in my office. She came and said, you know, Dar, you keep telling us what to do instead of telling us where to go. And we like you, so if you tell us where to go, we'll figure out our way there. But if all you do is tell us what to do, then whenever you're not in a meeting, nothing happens. So can you just tell us where to go and then let us get there? In this one conversation, 
Jen transformed Dara's trajectory as a manager. For me, it was like, boom, eye-popping. I had to really work very, very hard because I was a bit of a control freak to let go of what people are doing and really start talking about where we're going and trust my team to get us there. Dara had just learned an early lesson in running a Navy. From the outside, it might appear to you that you command a fleet of ships by telling each one exactly what to do. But that's not how the chain of command works. The Admiral doesn't tell each submarine commander the precise depth to dive to. The Admiral gives broad direction and trusts that their officers know what to do. This combination of strong local leadership and a strong centralized chain of command is what defines the most successful navies and distinguishes them from the pirates. Dara successfully grew Expedia into a $23 billion giant that won praise as one of the best managed companies in its industry. During his tenure as CEO, Expedia more than quadrupled its gross bookings, demonstrating Dara's ability to command a major enterprise through a period of significant growth. And then everything changed. You get a phone call. The phone call says, hmm, we'd like you to consider Uber. Why did you take the phone call? At first, I didn't. I said, why would I do that? I'm, I'm in such a great spot. I was comfortable. And I was blind in that, you know, the goal of life shouldn't be comfort. Dara remained comfortable at Expedia. But then a second call came in. I had a drink with actually Daniel Eck at Spotify. And Daniel asked me, have they called you about this thing? Because I recommended you for the job. I said, yeah, but I said, no way. Like, why would I do that? I'm in a great spot. You know, I'm happy. And Daniel looks at me and says, Dara, since when is life about happiness? It's about doing something great. This is important. You have to do this. Daniel and Dara were both right. The role at Uber was important. And it would certainly not be comfortable. Let's recap Uber's situation at the time. Uber's mission was to make transportation as easy to access as running water. The company grew incredibly quickly as it pursued this mission, fueled by over $22 billion in VC funding. But as the company scaled rapidly, so did its toxic culture and bad business tactics. These led to a constant stream of nasty and very public challenges. They included political infighting, allegations of corporate espionage, and criminal investigations. Then there were the many run-ins with regulators, taxi firms, and even Uber's own drivers. Uber saw a backlash in its key markets and withdrew from some, such as China. Back home, Uber's controversial approach to charging higher fares at peak times came to a head with a hashtag DeleteUber campaign. This was all against the background of Uber's aggressive bro culture and its cavalier attitude to spending. In February 2017, six months before Dara became CEO, a blog post by former Uber engineer Susan Fowler blew the lid off the misogyny and harassment that was rife at the company. Ariana Huffington became deeply involved in trying to fix the company's culture. She was the only woman on Uber's board of directors at that time. It was very important for the board to make it very clear that we were taking the accusation seriously, that there was going to be a full investigation, and that we're going to hold management accountable. 
And one of the things I said was something that goes beyond what's happening in Aruba, which is, you know, the whole culture of, you know, worshiping at the altar of hypergrowth, and therefore, if you're a top performer, anything is allowed. I said, I promise that going forward, no brilliant jerks will be allowed at Uber. Ariane and the board set out to rid Uber of brilliant jerks, but a lot of work remained for Dara. Looking at what Uber had been through and was going through, Dara knew he would need to build trust quickly. To do this, he needed unfiltered truth. And like an admiral, stepping aboard a flagship, full control. Dar made this clear during a presentation he gave to the Uber board during his interview for the CEO position. One of the slides in that presentation said, don't call me, I'll call you. Were you nervous about putting that slide in? I was nervous about putting that slide in, but I thought that it was very important for my relationship with the board to be one of truth and to be a frank relationship that would set us both up for success. If I'm coming in as a CEO, I've got to have authority. I needed room to affect change and to move the company in a different direction. And it was my way of telling the board and some of the founders that give me the authority and then judge me based on my actions. Dara set the tone of his relationship with the board before he was even offered the job of CEO. It was a gamble to speak to the board this way, but Dar knew that the only way he could take on the challenge of Uber was on his own terms. And one of those terms was unfiltered honesty. I think sometimes communications that are just dead honest are tough, but you have to force yourself to have those discussions because you get to the core of expectations and relationships, and ultimately they drive very healthy relationships between individuals or companies or boards and their CEOs. Well, honesty, especially difficult honesty, is how you build trust. Absolutely. Right, because they're like, okay, look, I'm, I'm being straight with you. This is how we need to operate. If you disagree with me, talk to me about it. Yes, <laughs> yes. The board chose Dara. After the break, we'll hear what he found when he arrived at Uber and what he did to start the company's long overdue transformation from pirate ship to naval vessel. Hey, listeners, it's Jodine Dorsey, the VP of Live Events at Wait What, the company behind Masters of Scale. I am constantly tasked with reaching out to teams across a wide spectrum of professions and the vastly different personalities that go with them. Grammarly helps me quickly shift tones to better communicate what I want to say and saves me valuable time in the process. Our upcoming Masters of Scale Summit event features top-tier speakers from CEOs to founders to political leaders. Grammarly's ability to produce on-brand writing helps me properly prepare for each and every thought leader I interact with on stage. It lets me generate the most exciting specialized content for our audience. In fact, teams that use Grammarly report 66% less time spent editing marketing content, which I've seen firsthand with my summit team. Join me and over 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly to work faster, hit their goals, and keep their data secure. Visit Grammarly.com to learn more. That's Grammarly.com. Before the break, Dara had just taken on the role of Uber CEO. He had walked into a situation surrounded by some very public controversy. What was that like? 
I asked them. So then you start, and you already know that there's a lot of things broken. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Broken relationships with governments, bro culture, you know, blog posts and all the rest yeah. happening outside. There is critiques about being overly aggressive and not very ethical in terms of, of business practice. Um, what does the first week look like walking into that? <laughs> I'm listening to you. I'm sweating because I'm remembering <laughs> that that first week. You know, I think one of the wonderful surprises for me coming in was that the public perception of the company was so different from the people that I found at the company when I joined. These are unbelievably smart people who can get another job at the drop of a hat. But the team that was there, they wanted to fight because they believed in the company. And that was one of the most delightful things when I got on, which was there's a group of warriors who were fighting for the company. Dara knew that most people at Uber were not pirates, but the culture there had promoted piracy for many years. And I think it's important here to draw a distinction. While all startups have pirate-like qualities, scrappiness, inventiveness, rule-breaking, there's a difference between ethical pirates and criminal pirates. Ethical pirates may ignore conventional rules, but they're driven by their own strong moral code. Think Johnny Depp in Pirates of the Caribbean. Criminal pirates have no such moral compass. How can you tell if your company has crossed the line? The broad question you should ask yourself is, am I a creator who is trying to improve the state of the world for everyone, or am I a thief who is just trying to grab things for myself? In creating a company, you are creating something for yourself, but you also need to be making a wide variety of consumers and businesses better off. Dara knew that in transitioning from pirate to Navy fleet, he'd need to firmly end the era of criminal pirates at Uber, while encouraging the many ethical warriors he found amongst its ranks. Dara took an approach he'd built since the days in his father's factory, his time with Barry Diller, and then heading up the Navy at Expedia. He wanted a culture that would arise naturally out of the good people still at Uber, the people who recognize the difficult things about the company but still believed in it. I remember there was a Jeff Bezos letter a couple of years ago where he said that, you know, the culture of the company defines itself. In an ideal world, I could work at the company for two, three years, understand what the culture is, and not have culture be top-down. I want the culture of the company to be X because I said so. Help the culture define itself. But we didn't have time for that. Instead, Dar gathered his team of captains, and they looked through the cultural suggestions from the entire crew. Before Dara, Uber's cultural guidelines ranged from the sober likes of be yourself to the full-on brotastic maxims like super pumped and always be hustling. It was time for a sweeping change. So we crowdsourced actually from our employees, what do you think should represent the culture of Uber going forward? There were some themes that came to the surface. As a team, then we got together and we picked the themes that we thought were the most relevant themes. And we created what we call our new cultural norms, the Uber 2.0 cultural norms. Some of these were continuations of the old norms. Some were totally new, and some were squarely aimed at overcoming the earlier toxic culture. 
We celebrate differences. We want to be a different company, but we also celebrate differences in background and where you come from and religion and sexuality, et cetera. And we believe that no matter what you bring to the table, you should be able to contribute to what we call Uber. And there was one cultural value in particular that harked back to what Dara had learned in his first month at Expedia. Trust that your crew will know what to do. The simplest that I hear repeated over and over is, we do the right thing, period. And we didn't want to define to an employee what the right thing is. You know what the right thing is. Let's do that, and period, that's what we do. You know what the right thing is. This is something that you need to remind yourself and your team of, no matter what stage of scale you are at. Because while startups and their founders benefit from behaving like ethical pirates, they should never behave like sociopaths, thieves, or criminals. The key is to assess whether or not you're being an ethical pirate. Ethical pirates have ethics that most of their crew members share. The executives and employees following a leader should ask themselves, are we on a mission to improve the world, or are we just in it for the gold? Do we truly care about the importance of diversity and inclusion for our team? Are we creating mutually beneficial relationships with managers and employees? If you're working for an ethical pirate, you should feel proud of your shared values. Dara had a clear mandate from Uber's board and customers, as well as the public, to transform the culture at Uber. It was time to give up the pirates' Jolly Roger for the flag of a disciplined Navy. The radical scale success of Uber that was unprecedented at the time, I think led to a culture that was highly confident, a culture that was confrontational, a culture that to some extent celebrated breaking the rules, all of which made possible what Uber built, but which created a blind spot as to individuals respect for diversity of different viewpoints, et cetera, that led to Susan Fowler's blog, which, by the way, wasn't the only difficult occurrence happening at the company. I want to be clear here. The type of awful behavior that was rampant at Uber is in no way necessary to build a winning scale company. And you should not tolerate such behavior as an acceptable cost of reaching scale. In fact, you want to make sure that such behavior never takes root and is never tolerated in your band of ethical pirates. But the problems with piracy go beyond ethics. Pirate ways just don't scale. As a startup succeeds, it needs new organized systems and new organized people to run a large operation. And the transition from pirate to Navy is tough logistically and culturally even for ethical pirates. My favorite analogy for entrepreneurship is it's like jumping off a cliff and building an airplane on the way down. Pirates don't convene a committee meeting to decide what to do when the ground is approaching. Arr, land ahoy. Park to port. But we haven't built the rudder yet. Ah, then set up a conference call and tell the crew to dial in. Instead, they act quickly and decisively and are willing to take risks because they know if they don't, it's death. Many founders of companies that have reached massive scale will light up 
when you talk to them about their early pirate days, and each will have their own swashbuckling tale of how they made the transition. Here's MailChimp founder, Ben Chestnut. Oh my God, and when you're a startup founder, it's all pirates. Who joins a startup? Crazy people, because startups are so risky. They've got a chip on their shoulder. They've got something to prove. They don't want rules. They want to do everything. You know, they want to build the whole house. This is why there are so many serial founders. Once that house is built, they move on to the next project. Those that stick around usually enlist help. And then what they do is they build something great. And then they hire other people to maintain it. And those people are different. Those people hire another cohort, a third generation of employees who hire a fourth generation. And these people want leadership. They want strategy. They're joining a winning company at this point, if you're lucky. They don't remember what it was like in the startup years when it was you were all pirates and crazy people and you were on the brink of death every single day and the boogeyman was lurking around the corner. These are people who are, they, they want to scale this thing up. Ben is one of those founders who decided to stick around. It's a whole different demeanor. And I think this is where a lot of founders probably choose to walk away. Um, and it's very difficult to stay. But we stayed. <laughs> Dara would have to lead Uber through a cultural transformation from pirates to Navy. But for Uber to thrive as a global business, he'd need three key elements in place. The first is a set of country managers who are responsible for their individual markets. The second is an understanding of how those markets differ. The third is a unified executive team, which creates a centralized command center. Under Travis, Uber actually had the first two. There were strong regional managers and a decentralized command structure that allows the individual captains in the fleet to operate with entrepreneurial vigor. However, it was the third crucial element that Uber was lacking. This element is a unified executive team to coordinate global operations, including the activity of individual country managers. Travis had failed over and over to unify his executive team. Executive meetings were canceled at the last minute. Backbiting and infighting were the rule, not the exception. When you have strong individual captains and an admiral who can't or won't build a staff to help manage the fleet, you end up with a disorganized group of unscrupulous pirates. This creates the potential for organizational collapse through a runaway cultural degeneration. What Uber needed was a centralized command that enforced and rewarded ethical terms of engagement. Before Dar joined the company, every encounter was treated as a confrontation. Instead of hailing other ships to offer a negotiation, Uber would steam right in, broadsides of cannons blazing, with a take-no-prisoners attitude. It was gunship diplomacy without the diplomacy. At least one thing that I see from the outside is, you know, with Travis and previously, Uber would have what I would call a pugnacious culture. Right, it would be a mm -hmm. tendency to say, you know, you challenge me, I hit you harder, <laughs> right? Whether it's governments, whether it's, you know, videos of arguments with, with Uber drivers, mm -hmm. you know, yes. all these sorts of things. That seems to have changed. It was a, an important shift. And I think to some extent, the pugnacious nature of the company 
got it into trouble, but also to some extent is responsible for the fact that it's a terrific company that I've got the pleasure of being able to run. This is an important point to remember. When you become an honorable Navy, it doesn't mean you are a toothless diplomatic corps. You still need to be an effective fighting force, but one that is a lot more strategic in projecting its power. But it was clear to me that we needed to change strategies. It was clear to me that what got us here was not the right way forward. And, you know, I firmly believe that when you work in a industry like ours, in a technology industry, in the transportation industry, which is a $5 trillion marketplace, the world is not a zero-sum world. So just because someone wants something, it doesn't mean that you have to give it up. There's actually room for dialogue and compromise. One area Uber was known for being particularly combative was its relationships with its drivers. This was highlighted in the video of its founder, Travis Kalanick, yelling at an Uber driver. Dara takes a markedly different approach, not unlike his father on the factory floor in Iran. The vision with the drivers is that we call them driver partners and let's treat them like driver partners. So actually, when I got here, a group of employees, and these are you know, the, the Uber champions, they had actually gotten together to create a program called 180 Days of Change to fundamentally listen to our drivers and change the product based on the dialogue with our driver partners, things like tipping, things like paid wait times, so that we're really building something for them, not just for us. And I think it's fundamentally a different way of working. Of course, there are still many issues between Uber and its drivers. And as the company evolves, there will be more to come. But I am sure we will never see Dara screaming at an Uber driver. This is what he told me when we spoke in December, after a little more than half a year at Uber. I think one of the traps that I see with technology companies or executives in general is you lose touch with the outside world. You know, San Francisco, it's a bubble here. And... For me, one of the first things that I did, and now I do it as a rule whenever I go from city to city, is I meet with drivers. And they're pretty damn honest with the stuff that they like. There's a lot of stuff that they like. And there's plenty of stuff that they don't like. And that connection, I think, was something that was missing, maybe because the company was just too busy or growing too fast. Dara is seeking a direct connection with Uber drivers. It's the same impulse for unfiltered truth that brought Barry Diller to Dara's desk all those years ago. This doesn't mean that Dara literally has to have a one-on-one with every driver. He just needs to make sure that his officers are of such a caliber that they will have no problem bringing that unfiltered truth to him. Now we have a fundamental connection there that is reflected in the organization. We have a driver product team. And we now fundamentally build our product with the driver. We talk to them, we have a dialogue with them, and we build with them. That kind of connectivity with our driver partners, I think, creates a win-win and it creates mutual respect. It wasn't just drivers Uber frequently clashed with. The company has famously fallen out with regulators across the world. Again, Dara's approach here is one of dialogue rather than dissonance. So I think from a government standpoint, and I'll put government regulators in one box, what wasn't happening, which now is happening, is honest, plain-spoken dialogue. One example is TFL, 
the authority that oversees transport operations in London. Uber came close to losing its license to operate in the city. When I sat down with TFL in London, what I discovered about the history there is that TFL was asking perfectly just questions. There was nothing weird or unusual about their requests, but the conversation and the dialogue was happening through lawyers versus two people sitting across the desk talking, maybe not agreeing on all things, but trying to come up with some compromise. It's just the realization that there are needs that governments and regulators have, there are needs that private companies have, and there's an overlap someplace where both can coexist peacefully. Of course, it won't be possible to come to agreements everywhere. We pulled out of Barcelona just because we fundamentally disagree with something that the city government did. It was designed to protect taxi cabs versus consumers. And when that happens, we won't do business there. But an honest dialogue with a give and take, I believe, is going to move us into a position of partnership, with governments and regulators. Dar is also envisioning a way that being more open and inclusive will propel the next stage of Uber's business. I won't pretend that it's easy, but one of the strategic pivots that we have taken is to think about Uber not as a service, but as a transportation platform. Think of it as an Amazon of transportation. You can take a bus, you'll be able to take a car, you'll be able to take a train you will be able to take a taxi using Uber. It's a win for the consumer because the more choices I've got, the more pricing I've got, the better the product is. Another way I think of putting it is saying, because we're a platform, we're giving you a chance to include you in the future. That's right. That's right. And, and I think technology companies have been accused of not being inclusive. And I think, by the way, that criticism to some extent has been fair and we want to pivot our strategy so that it is a bigger, inclusive strategy. Uber began its journey as a band of pirates, hell-bent on radical disruption. And disruption is often portrayed as destructive. But part of economic progress is disruption. Ironically, the disruption beloved by pirates has been essential to Uber's belated transformation into a navy. But it is the disruption of its culture, not of its business model, that has been key. And Dara recognizes that it is an ongoing struggle. Was there a moment in the internal cultural transformation where you suddenly felt like, okay, we've dug ourselves out, we're now on the right path, like a conversation, a realization, a, an event that happened that you went, ah, yes, this is exactly where we're on path. I'm still waiting for that moment. You know, I'm, I'm, uh, I think the cultural transformation, it's, it is hard. It continues. It takes a long time. Just because you say something, it's not necessarily actioned at all levels of the company every single day. You know, I don't live up to all of our norms, you know, every hour of every day. This stuff takes a long time. I think we are in a much, much better spot than we have been, but I'm not comfortable at this point. Truth-telling remains a crucial element. The singular rule of CEO life is that the higher up you move in a company, the less you really know what's going on. And the only way that I found to figure out what's going on is by telling the truth. And so when I communicate to my employees, I talk about the good stuff, 
But I talk about the bad stuff. I don't sugarcoat it because then when you tell the truth, your employees are like, oh, wow, like this is okay to talk about the bad stuff. So the next time you see them and you ask them, how's it going? You may not get the answer. Great. Everything's fine. And they're hiding. Actually, they're panicking in the background. Like, listen, we've got a problem. And this is the defining upside of being a truth-telling admiral rather than a fear-mongering pirate lord. Usually you hear about the problems when it can't be solved or it's too late. They come to you before it's too late. You have the privilege of seeing the truth because your team knows that you say the truth. It's simple but really hard. And the key thing is obviously you can't work on the problem together unless we're talking about it. Absolutely. I agree with Dara. It is simple and really hard. We're releasing this episode just after Uber has gone public, as the company enters its next stage as a global Navy fleet with Dara's Admiral. And if you hope to make a similar transition someday from startup pirate ship to a formidable mission-focused Navy, here's my advice to you. Make sure during your pirate days, you fly the flag of spirited ethical behavior, and never let it slip from your mast to be replaced by the skull and crossbones. I'm Reed Hoffman. Thank you for listening. Hi, everyone. It's Jeff Berman, CEO of Wait What and co-host of the Masters of Scale podcast. Like many of you, my to-do list changes by the minute. Whether I'm working with partners or hashing out legal documents or brainstorming with our team, there is never a shortage of tasks that require attention and constant communication. Like Masters of Scale co-host Reid Hoffman, I know artificial intelligence is a huge part of our future. And Grammarly is an enterprising leader in AI. With Grammarly, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks. It's like having a collaborator for my writing, helping me generate better first drafts and tailoring messages to our specific audiences. It's not only a superior AI tool, it is a safe AI tool. And as a CEO, security is always top of mind. Grammarly has 14 years of experience and a business model that never sells our data. Security has been a priority since day one and continues to be integral to Grammarly's values today. Join me and over 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly to work faster, hit their goals, and keep their data secure. Visit Grammarly.com to learn more. That's Grammarly.com. Masters of Scale is a Wait What original. The show is recorded on-site in California and produced at the studio inside SY Partners in New York. Our executive producers are June Cohen and Darren Triff. Our producers are Chris McLeod, Adam Skuse, Jenny Cataldo, Dan Kedmi, Jordan McLeod, and Ben Manila. Our supervising producer is Jay Punjabi. Original music by Allison Leighton Brown. Sound design, mixing, and mastering by Brian Pugh. Special thanks to Chris Yeh, Bob Safian, Elisa Schreiber, David Sanford, Saida Sepieva, Christina Gonzalez, Sarah Sandman, and Lauren Passell. Visit mastersofscale.com to find a transcript for this episode, and be sure to subscribe to our email newsletter.